I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of Israel-Palestine, the bombing of Gaza, the October 7th Hamas attack, and related issues with Ambassador Chaz Freeman, a visiting scholar at the Watson Institute for International Relations and Public Affairs. Chaz has a storied career. You'll learn about some of it in the conversation to follow. And he has his own opinions and thoughts to share about what is happening right now in the Middle East. This is a man who is very hard-nosed. He doesn't pull any punches in his analysis. And this is Chaz Unfiltered. He calls them as he sees them. So, without any further ado, let's get right to it with Ambassador Chaz Freeman. Welcome back to Parallax Views. A guest that I'm very, very happy uh, could join me. He's been on the show before. Ambassador Chaz W. Freeman Jr., Senior Fellow at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs, a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense, Ambassador to Saudi Arabia during Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and also uh, one of the principal American interpreters during President Nixon's visit to Beijing in 1972. Uh Ambassador Freeman, how are you doing? I know that's a, a wild question to ask, given all the turmoil happening right now. Um, well, I'm actually sick at heart as I watch our country uh, support, encourage uh, mass murder in Gaza. 
um, this is not a war, it is genocide. If you could, from your perspective, uh, what do you think the main points uh, are when talking about Gaza right now? It's been 27 days since the October 7th attack. What do you think is being missed in a lot of the analysis? Because I know you're you're a very uh, hard-nosed commentator. You don't uh, sugarcoat things. And I think you're willing to say things that other people either miss or want to ignore. Most of the attention in the press, to the extent that um, there's any balance at all in the coverage, uh, which is not much, um, is um, about humanitarian assistance to Gaza. And in fact, uh, Secretary of State Blinken has just gone to Israel, allegedly, to arrange for assistance. But this is like putting a bandage on a gaping wound that is vastly larger than the bandage. This is the point entirely. Uh, Israeli policy is quite openly devoted to doing one of two things, depopulating Gaza by driving Gazans out of it into the Sinai, into the desert, uh, or killing them. But in either either point, either case, uh, carrying out what is clearly genocide, where the, the only sin of the innocent people who are being killed uh, is uh, their religious and ethnic identity. Um, this is, uh, I find it almost impossible to believe that the victims of genocide and their descendants, Jews, Israeli Jews, uh, would be perpetrating exactly what was done to them uh, to yet another people. What I say exactly what was done to them, this is the application of advanced science and technology to defenseless civilians. If you could, could you talk about uh, the history leading up to this? Because, you know, I know a lot of people right now are covering uh, some of the really horrendous statements coming out of the mouths of Israeli officials, uh, statements referring to Gazans as, as human animals and whatnot. But even before October 7th, uh, this language was being used. I remember in your book, America's Continuing Misadventures in the Middle East, uh, you talk about how you know Netanyahu uh, openly said, I believe in 2015, that you know we need to control all the territory of historic Gaza for the foreseeable future. And then he said, I'm asked if we will forever live by the sword. And he said, yes. So it, I feel like there is a long history of the Israeli far right uh, really pushing something very dangerous when it comes to the Palestine issue. Um, Israel has used the division between the territorial and political divisions between Gaza, which is the world's largest concentration camp, uh, described often as an open-air prison, and the West Bank, where Palestinians are being forcibly concentrated into the equivalent of Bantu stands, small enclaves that are walled off and isolated from each other and from uh, the Jewish uh, settler population. Uh, It has used this this division uh, to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state. That has been Mr. Netanyahu's lifetime endeavor. 
uh, to prevent the Palestinians from having what Israelis have, namely self-determination um, in, in, in the Holy Land. Um, I think uh, what is being shown in this uh, horror that we are witnessing is that there is no uh, possibility of uh, Israelis living in peace and safety without a Palestinian state. Because, you know, it is said, uh, the, the, the alleged justification for the massacres that are going on in Gaza is, uh, well, of course, on one level, it's simply revenge uh, for the atrocities that uh, Hamas and other Palestinians who escaped from the open-air prison on October 7th carried out against Israelis, innocent Israelis, a horrible, horrible um, event um, by any standard. Uh, but it has caused Israelis to recognize, realize that they are not safe. Um, this country, Israel, which was established as a safe haven for the world's Jews, supposedly, um, to prevent uh, anti-Semitism, which is, by the way, a European and Christian phenomenon, not an Arab or, or Islamic phenomenon particularly. I mean, relations between Muslims and Jews were never... Uh, all that wonderful, but they did not extend to the level of persecution and ostracism that the Europeans carried out, and they certainly did not extend to the Holocaust. Um, so uh, now uh, we see uh, uh, the illustration uh, that, one, you can't get rid of Gaza. Uh, when Gaza was first occupied by the Israelis, they wanted to give it to Egypt. They wanted to give it away. They didn't. They didn't want Palestinians, and they thought they could very conveniently offload it. And it didn't. And Egypt didn't want it um, for many reasons. Egypt has its own problems. It doesn't need more. And um, in any event, uh, uh, Gaza uh, is now the subject of uh, the object of a, a campaign designed to depopulate it, get rid of it, if it will, if you will. One of the reasons for this is that there are actually now more Palestinians in Palestine than there are Israelis. As of a year or two ago, um, the, uh, is the Jewish Israeli population was about 47% of, of uh, this one entity that rules the entire land between the Jordan River and, and the Mediterranean. So uh, there's a lot involved here. But what I am mostly concerned about, I think there are several reasons that we should be concerned. Um, first is the obvious one that this war has the capacity to expand. Um, Israel continues to threaten Lebanon. There is sporadic fighting on the Lebanese-Israeli frontier. Um, uh, Israel continues to support strife in Syria and to carry out bombing raids and missile attacks on Syrian installations. Israel continues to threaten Iran with attack uh, over its nuclear program. Turkey and Iran have been, who are which are historic enemies, um, have been pushed together by these events into a kind of entente, a sort of limited partnership for limited purposes against Israel and Zionism. Um, Egypt uh, has massed tanks at the Gaza border. Um, the Abraham Accords, which seemed for a time to be setting aside the Palestinian issue in favor of normalized relations between Arab countries and Israel is at best frozen and possibly dead. 
Um, it certainly is not the, the effort to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel and uh, Israel is, is gone. It is now infeasible. Um, so there's a danger of a wider war, and that is uh, something to be concerned about. But beyond that, when people think of Israel in the future, the first word that's going to come to their mind is genocide. Not the genocide of Jews, but genocide by Israelis of Palestinian Arabs. Um, Israel's reputation internationally uh, is being so badly damaged. Um, an American association with Israel is being carried along with this damage that I wonder whether the United States can continue to protect Israel from the application of international law and judgment as we have for so long. So I suspect that this war is going to end uh, very badly for Israel uh, for these reasons. And a final point, uh, if I may, and that is uh, in the first week after October 7, some 60,000 Israelis emigrated. They left because they don't feel safe, because they feel themselves they are people of conscience and they feel sick about what fellow Israelis are doing. Uh, this is even before the settlers went on their rampages in the West Bank, which has produced some truly ugly scenes. Um, is, uh, you know, it raises the question, uh, can Israel survive over the long term? Uh, twice before in the Middle Ages, uh, there were attempts to establish Christian kingdoms where Israel now is, the so-called Crusader kingdoms, two of them. Um, the first one lasted 88 years, the second 99 years. They both perished from the same factors, internal political rot, very much like what Israel has been experiencing under Netanyahu recently, and the end of foreign willingness uh, to support these entities against a hostile neighborhood, neighbor, against hostile neighbors in the Arab and Muslim world. So I think this raises a lot of questions, and I don't see these being fairly addressed or even addressed very much at all in our press. I wanted to ask you something about the the possibility of a broader regional conflict. Uh, something I see people saying now, especially after, uh, just so people know, uh, we're recording this uh, shortly after uh, Nasrallah of Hezbollah uh, gave his speech. And I, I see a lot of people saying, oh, obviously we've deterred Hezbollah from getting involved. We've deterred Iran. There is going to be a broader conflict based on uh, what we saw from this speech. It doesn't seem like Hezbollah wants to get involved in a broader conflict. Uh, but I, I still think a broader regional conflict is possible. Uh, what do you make of that assessment? Well, I, I, I just uh, outlined some of the factors I did not mention, Hezbollah. And, you know, the, the, what, what usually starts wars is a mistake by somebody. Um, and, uh, you know, Israel is behaving in a manner that is totally inconsistent with international law and morality. Um, the Arab uh, countries that uh, Israel must have peace with uh, are in the, are greatly agitated. Uh, the so-called Abraham Accords depended on deals with Arab leaders who are essentially autocrats over the opposition of the local populations, which are strongly opposed to normalization with Israel. Now there are demands in the Arab world, uh, increasing, rising demands, that they do something 
to stop the slaughter. Uh, I think this is a very explosive situation. I don't know what might set it off, um, but uh, I'm concerned uh, beyond this uh, about uh, the, the long-term implications. I, you know, uh, Zionism uh, is not the same thing as Judaism by any means. Uh, it is a, a form of nationalism. Many Jews regard it as idolatrous. Um, it is the worship of the state. Um, it is an expansionist philosophy. It is a philosophy that has grown into Jewish supremacism uh, in the uh, in the Holy Land. Um, there's nothing particularly admirable about it anymore. It, it once had a following internationally. When I was a young man, I very admiring of what I thought Israel represented. Um, uh, but uh, I think um, there is a danger that Zionism will be confused with, anti-Zionism anti will be confused with anti-Semitism. And we see rising violence against Jews, um, as we have seen in the past with Islamophobia, rising violence against Muslims. And I fear we could be in for a wave of terrorism directed uh, not just to uh, Jews generally, um, uh, but against Americans because we are entirely identified with uh, Zionism. Our president is an avowed Zionist. Our uh, Secretary of State made his first arrival in Israel after October 7, stating the, that he was there as an American Jew, uh, not as American Secretary of State, and as a, as a descendant of Holocaust survivors. Well, I, I, I feel for Mr. Blinken. Um, uh, I'm sure that all is very traumatic. Uh, but to the extent that um, world Jewry is, identifies itself automatically, reflexively, uh, thoughtlessly with the genocide being carried out by Israelis, uh, they are placing themselves in jeopardy. And, and I, you know, I have uh, Jewish grandchildren. I don't I don't like that. Something I wanted to ask you is, uh, you know, I'm seeing reports, I believe it was from some uh, diplomats at the, the G7 or the G8 uh, saying, you know, this is going to have broader ramifications uh, for U.S. relations with other countries, uh, particularly countries in the global south that really identify with the Palestinian cause. And it brought to mind uh, something you've said in the past. And I was wondering if you could uh, delve more into this. You've talked about whether, uh, you know, the U.S.-Israel special relationship is actually strategically uh, useful or whether it's a strategic liability. And I think you come down on the side that it's a liability. Could you explain why you think it's a liability, especially in light of, you know, there's that old quote from Biden where Biden said back in the 90s, uh, you know, if there wasn't an Israel, we'd need to create one in the Middle East. I think you take issue with that kind of thinking. Why do you think that uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship is actually a liability? Well, first of all, it's not an alliance. Israel has assumed no obligation to help the United States, and it doesn't. Uh, in fact, uh, when the United States asks it to cease and desist from doing things that are injurious to the United States, uh, Israel doesn't pay any attention. Uh, when we ask Israel to help us, it doesn't come forward. Uh, this is a very one-sided relationship. 
um, we protect Israel. Um, it is, Israel is an American protectorate. It is not an ally. Um, it is also an albatross around our necks in terms of our relations with others in the region. Israel has had three quarters of a century to make friends in its, uh, among its neighbors. It has made none. Uh, instead, it has been either at war or in a state of low-level conflict with them. Uh, and uh, it has carried out atrocities consistently. Sometimes Israel complains that there's nobody to talk to on the Palestinian side. Um, I urge those who are interested in this statement to read the book Rise and Strike First uh, by an Israeli author who describes Mossad and other Israeli agencies' assassination of over 3,000 politicians in the Arab world, uh, some Europeans too, um, uh, who were regarded as enemies of the Israeli state. Well, if you kill anybody who has ability to talk to you, then you don't have anybody to talk to. That's true. Uh, finally, um, I think um, it's fair to say that the U.S. identification with Israel, which is total, um, has historically uh, caused us to bear major prices. For example, the 1973 oil embargo by Arab states and the resulting rise in energy prices globally, the damage to the American economy from that. Um, this was a huge price to pay uh, for assisting uh, Israel in its continued occupation of the Sinai at the time. Um, so um, I think uh, uh, this is a one-sided relationship. It's all take and no give. And uh, uh, it, you know, it is based not on uh, foreign policy considerations or national security considerations. It's based purely on American political electoral politics. And in that regard, it is now an albatross around the neck of Mr. Biden because he's losing the brown, black, and progressive vote over what Americans, other than um, those in the establishment who are uh, either who are very pro-Zionist, uh, uh, see as uh, as American complicity in serious war crimes, a sickening vista. As I said at the outset, we um, see that this in the polls. I think Mr. Biden's election which was always a bit uh, dubious due to lack of enthusiasm for him, has now become very difficult. And you see this with the White House reaction to trying to establish a national center to combat Islamophobia. What is that about? That is about trying to offset the, the, the loss of three or four million votes that has come from this Israeli rampage through through us. Um, now, I mean, if I were Israeli, I would have also sought vengeance. If I were a cousin, I would have sought vengeance. These people have been subjected to 17 years of sadistic mistreatment. Uh, they have been periodically bombed. Uh, they have been assassinated. When they have tried peaceful demonstrations at the border, they have been shot in the knee. Um, well, I Israel even refers to those bombing campaigns as mowing the lawn. Mowing the grass, yes. 
which is an absolutely inhuman way to describe uh, people. Um, you know, I, and I, you know, as far as the West Bank is concerned, uh, that is apartheid. Uh, and I recall I dealt with South Africa when it was under apartheid. Uh, this is vastly worse. The South African uh, Afrikaners and uh, the English whites um, had a theory, uh, admittedly not a very attractive one, of so-called separate development. That is, they created Bantustans, independent countries nominally, and the theory was that people would be allowed to develop their own culture and their own make their own progress um, in, in accordance with their ethnicity. There has never been any Israeli effort to permit the development of Palestinian culture or uh, to advance Palestinian living standards or anything else. Quite the contrary, the whole, whole focus has been the slow suffocation and expulsion of Palestinians. So this is worse. Under South Africa, when there were riots, uh, there were massacres. Uh, there are massacres on a daily basis in the Israeli occupation. You mentioned um, American political considerations playing a role in the U.S.-Israel relationship. Can you elaborate on that? And ultimately, do you think in a way, I, I was talking to Professor Stephen Walt uh, um, about a week ago, and he said, in a way, the lopsided nature of this relationship is actually going to hurt Israel itself in the long run. Well, it does. It has hurt Israel because the principal sponsors of unreasonable self-destructive policies in Israel have been wealthy American Jews. Uh, Sheldon Adelson comes to mind. Um, this is somebody who created a free newspaper to support Netanyahu. And Netanyahu has led Israel down a disastrous path to self-destruction. Um, these are people, these are armchair Zionists or seasonal Zionists. They go there once in a while. Um, and they don't, um, they don't carry the risks that Israelis do from the policies that they advocate. They're utterly irresponsible and unaccountable. Now, and they are a very important factor in American politics. I'm a great admirer of uh, the various American Jewish communities for their civic involvement. They are generous in their to charities. They are generous in their support of American politics. 50% of donations to the Democratic Party are from wealthy Jews. A lot of the, you know, there's a lot made of little donations by individuals, $5, $20, whatever. This basically is a loss leader. Um, the, the companies that uh, arrange those donations charge enough in administrative fees, so it, it comes out, you don't make any money off the small donations. But if you can get millions of dollars um, in corporate and uh, plutocratic donations, uh, you're way ahead. So uh, this drives American policy in the Middle East in ways that I think are ultimately extremely destructive of Israeli interests, damaging to American Jews, and ultimately very dangerous for our country, as 9-11 showed. 
I just had a, a few more brief questions. I know we have to start wrapping up, but um, I was wondering if you, I, I know this is probably ancient history for you, but I, I think my listeners, some of them may not be familiar with this, but I know in 2009, there was talk of having you in the, uh, as the chair of the National Intelligence Council uh, under the Obama administration. And there were some pretty brutal attacks on your character uh, by what I would call uh, sort of like hood supporting um, forces, uh, the Israel lobby, as people call it. Could you speak to what happened with that? Uh, how did that go down? I mean, you were accused of being a crackpot for mentioning the Israel lobby. W what's the story of uh, that incident? Well, very simply, um, I had given 30 years of my life to the service of my country and had retired and was enjoying retirement and trying to make a little bit of money because I, you don't make money as a career officer in the foreign service. Um, I was asked to take this position. I declined. I was asked again. I refused again. I warned those who approached me that um, I had been outspoken on a number of issues, including Israel-Palestine, and that undoubtedly I would be politically attacked. Uh, I was asked a third time, and I was told the country needs you, and my patriotic impulse kicked in, and I was great reluctance, I agreed. I was actually relieved when I uh, had to withdraw from the position. By the way, the position was appointed, not, not subject to Senate confirmation, so there was no way uh, to have a hearing, um, uh, no way to combat the slanders that were leveled against me. Um, the whole thing was organized uh, by uh, some people in the Zionist Organization of America, which is the far right in the Israel lobby. That's uh, the one read, uh, led by um, Morton Klein, very far right, uh, yeah. And and and, and APAC. Um, and um, uh, it was uh, it was very effective. Now I accepted the job for two reasons. Um, I was told that the, I was needed for to do two things. One was to restore credibility to the American intelligence prod, uh, product, which had been badly damaged by uh, the fiasco in Iraq and by uh, uh, the uh, uh, Iran nuclear program findings, which were contrary to uh, public opinion. I mean, the intelligence community has never validated the thesis that, that Iran has a nuclear weapons program, uh, but it's an article of faith. And so the intelligence community was battered for being wrong um, uh, and also for being right. I felt I could do that. The second thing was uh, to improve the quality of the product. Um, and I felt I could do that. Uh, I actually have quite a good record at forecasting events that other people have poo-pooed before they occurred. Um, and uh, so uh, I was confident I could do the job, but I could not do the job if I was constantly assaulted by the Zionist lobby uh, and everything I, I said was immediately disparaged um, uh, by them. Um, their tactics are utterly unscrupulous. They make up stories. Um, I have not mentioned this before, but uh, I learned a year later, I don't use social media, that they had set up a Twitter account for me in which they were blasting forth uh, really disgusting anti-Semitic uh, tweets 
I didn't even know about this thing until somebody asked me whether it was mine. Twitter, to its credit, shut the thing down and advised me that it, the account had been opened in Israel. Um, so um, do I? Did this cause me to admire the lobby? Uh, I guess in a sense of rail politics, they're very effective. I admire their uh, their ruthlessness, um, but uh, I have no fond feelings for them. Real quick in that regard, are these same forces? And I know when people say the Israeli lobby, a lot of people just think APAC, but it is sort of a network of different groups, including APAC, including the Zionist Organization of America. Is it fair to say that these same forces try to scuttle things like the JCPOA? Of course. Um, you know, this is um, the best proof of that is Netanyahu's um, invitation to address a joint session of Congress against the wishes of the president. Um, and um, remember that? And there were multiple kowtows to Mr. Netanyahu by the president of the chamber for the benefit of campaign donations. Uh, where did those come from? Uh, they come from coordination by these various groups. Now, I would say um, one thing about uh, I don't believe there is an American Jewish community. I don't believe there is an American Jewish conspiracy. I think there are many Jewish communities who disagree with each other on many things, including Israel. Uh, I have friends who are Orthodox who don't believe Israel should exist. I have friends who are secular Jew Jews who are among the most ethnically, ethically uh, thoughtful and conscientious people I have ever met. Uh, and then there are a lot of people who define themselves in part by their relationship with this foreign state called Israel. Um, I have, uh, I don't define myself by reference to anything but my own country. Um, and I'm disturbed by this. In regards to that, and I, I promise I'll let you go here, but um, with regards to the Israel lobby, do you think the conversation has changed a lot since 2009. Like I said, you were attacked pretty hard. There was the, the crackpot accusation. Uh, but really, I think more and more people understand the significance of groups like the Zionist Organization of American APAC. I don't think it's seen as crazy anymore. Um, the Washington Post on the day that I withdrew my, my um, I withdrew from that position um, had three stories. One on the front page, by a very uh, competent Jewish journalist, Walter Pincus, um, documented the campaign against me by the Zionist Organization of America and APAC. Um, there was an editorial page, an editorial, that pronounced me as a crackpot for asserting that there was an Israel lobby. And there was a column by David Broder, one of the most respected journalists of his time, uh, saying that... Uh, uh, my having been driven from this office was a loss to the country uh, and uh, to the Obama presidency, which was in its infancy. Um, uh, there's no question that uh, the publication of the Israel Lobby, the book by Mearsheimer and Walt, and uh, my own experience, uh, because unlike most people who were savaged by the lobby, I didn't simply quietly walk the plank. I did a double backflip off it and gave the lobby the finger as I went into the 
down into the shark infested waters. Um, and I would say one thing about the lobbies, they never give up. They're still, I believe, paying Google to ensure that if you do a Google search on me, you get all their stuff up front, uh, all the pejorative stuff. Well, I've gone on with my life. I've done many other things. Um, and um, this is actually only a small episode in my life. Um, and um, so uh, I would say that uh, the fact that the lobby is, consists of ankle biters, uh, sort of pit dogs who never let go, is uh, an interesting phenomenon. In closing, uh, what do you say to people who are going to respond to uh, your criticisms of what Israel is doing in Gaza by saying something like, well, what should Israel do then? I want to know what you how, how you think Israel should have reacted to the October 7th attack, and how should the Biden administration, in your view, be dealing with all of this? Those are big questions. Um, first, Israel should not have driven the Palestinians mad as they did, as they have, uh, with three, three quarters of a century of exceedingly vicious treatment. Um, they should not have been expanding the settlements. Uh, they should have been finding a peace with the Palestinians, not pursuing their expulsion or their extermination. Um, when Hamas came out over the fences in 15 different locations, others followed it from Gaza. Uh, much of the killing that occurred the, the true, the truly horrible atro atrocities, which, by the way, Israel, of course, is characteristically propagandized in, in, a, in, a, in a distorted manner. There were no beheaded babies. And so this is an invention of Aspara, the Israeli propaganda the technique. Um, there were horrible things done. Um, to, the, to, to a great extent, I don't think they were done by Hamas, which was actually aiming to take Israeli soldiers captive, and to capture military facilities. And I think was surprised by the viciousness of some of those who came out following it, took advantage of the situation. In any event, Israel's right to seek um, retribution from Hamas. Hamas cannot be allowed to get away with, or could not be allowed to get away with this kind of attack without an appropriate reprisal. But a reprisal, the, the reprisal that is going on is not directed at Hamas. It is directed at the entire Palestinian population in Gaza. It is utterly indiscriminate. And uh, therefore, uh, it, is, uh, a, uh, it is equally objectionable. It is a holocaust. It is a holocaust. It is not a reprisal. Uh, and I think we need to understand that. And I, I think uh, in the end, as we've been discussing, this is going to do nothing but bad things to Israel's reputation and our own, given our support for what Israel is doing. And then that, that last question, uh, what would you, if you were to advise the Biden administration, how would you, uh, is there anything you would advise to them right now? Yes, I would say don't sacrifice the American reputation globally for the sake of genocide in Gaza. Um, now, my ancestor, John Winthrop, spoke of a city on a hill and said the eyes of the world were upon it. 
and that it should shine with virtue. Um, now, when the global south, the global majority, the rising powers in the world look at the United States, they do not see a shining city on a hill. They see rubble and dead children. This is not something we should allow. And I just want to put a fine point on that. Uh, the numbers that we're looking at right now is uh, 9,000 Palestinians have been killed in 27 days, and that's mostly women and minors. So, uh, you know, that's just to give my listeners an idea of where this is at. I want to thank you again, Ambassador Freeman, uh, for coming on my show and giving me your time. Thank you so much. Uh, anything else that I missed or that you wanted to say uh, in closing here? Next time, pick a happy topic. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ambassador Chaz Freeman and that you'll consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit it. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.